Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This episode of Gen C is sponsored by Chainalysis. Welcome to Gen C. Gen C is Generation Crypto. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how Web2 and Web3 brands are building for these audiences. I'm Sam Ewan from Coindesk, and our co-host is Avery Akinini from Vayner3. All right, Avery, so good to see you. We have a really jam-packed episode this week. Our guest this week is the one and only Bobby Hundreds. I know we're both fans of his and friends of his. You interviewed him on stage last year at VCon. What are you most excited to talk to Bobby about? I'm looking forward to having Bobby share his perspective of how NFTs fit in on his career journey. Many folks don't know that actually The Hundreds has existed for almost two decades. And Bobby and Ben have been doing t-shirts and collabs and social media for a long time. And they were early to this sort of world of NFTs and they've brought a lot of brands into the space. They've collaborated really effectively. They've been excellent sort of vocalizers for why fashion companies should consider Web3. So I'm excited for him to share a little bit about his journey. I think it's really interesting. And he comes at it from a creator perspective and a collector perspective and a talent perspective. So he's really a triple threat. How about you, Sam? I'm super excited to talk to him. We had a great session on stage with him and Kevin Rose at Consensus. I'm sure we'll touch a little bit on that, but he's someone I just think is so thoughtful and is a really good guide and someone who can shepherd more brands into the space because of the way that he utilizes business intelligence to run his NFT project called Adam Bomb Squad. But first, let's look at some quick stories. I don't know if you read this. Sports Illustrated, along with Consensus, launched an NFT ticketing platform. And you and I have talked endlessly about NFT ticketing. When I went to look at this and I kind of went a little deep, it feels like it's a little bit of actually just SI, like lending their IP to a ticketing platform, because I couldn't find anything about Sports Illustrated events themselves. I only said that it's a Sports Illustrated fan ticket network experience. But I guess, do you know anything more about this? Because I kept trying to find the why there and I haven't been able to find it yet. I have also not been able to find the full picture. I think it was a bit of an early announcement to get people looking into it but I haven't been able to see the full scoop yet. There are a lot of exciting announcements that have happened this week. Actually, just today, I saw Barbie is partnering with Boss Beauties, which I think is a nice little collab. It's getting a little bit of love on social channels. A program created by Lisa Mayer and her husband, Anthony, called Boss Beauties. Is, you know, they've hinted towards some collabs. Their whole mission is a girl can be anything she wants to be. And they're releasing this new program with Barbie, which I think is really nice. And I'm excited to check that out. It's nice to see this kind of continued collab alignment still happening with Web3 native brands. 
and more sort of mainstream brands who have that sort of shared DNA from a cultural relevance standpoint. I had not seen that. So thank you for bringing that up. I'll definitely check that out. I mean, I think very similarly, we saw this week Pudgy Penguins, which is an NFT-focused IP, raise $9 million. What's really interesting about this, we've all kind of said, and I'm sure you said it too, like the future of IP will come out of the Web3 world. And this is one where the original founders were kicked out because they basically just took the treasury and jumped. And the community came together and there was one person specifically named Luca Netz who came in and brought 2.5 million to the project, bought the project kind of rights, if you will, and said, part of my deal is to make this into a mainstream brand, collectibles, toys, shirts, games. And they announced that they had raised $9 million. They signed with WME. So it is, I thought, a really interesting way, just as you were talking about with Barbie and Boss Beauties. There's some legs in some of these communities and some of the creative IP. Do you think we're going to see more of these types of deals? And do you think that as these things push forward, we're going to start to see them pop up in pop culture? A million percent. I think Luca is an incredible figure. He has this great entrepreneurial background. He bought pudgies. And he's really become beloved by that community and the Web3 community at large just for being able to take a tough situation and really turn it in the right direction through the toys that he launched, through the events that they've done, and now through this raise. So I'm excited where he's going to take it and, you know, very much in support of the Pudgies. I think we've seen a nice recovery from, you know, even things like their floor price and the activity and their Discord. They've really done an incredible job getting the Pudgy Penguins back in the right direction, and I'm very much rooting for them. Amazing. Okay. And then finally, I want to wrap up on interesting new Web3 use cases. Two of them that caught my eye. So first is WorldCoin, which is Sam Altman's project, which is basically kind of a UBI, how do we use crypto to bring everyone up? The thing that they're trying to do is be proof of identity against AI. And so the thing with WorldCoin is when you launch the wallet, it's a light wallet, but you have to verify by literally having your iris scanned. So it's true proof of humanity. And then the idea is then when you connect to a website and Avery connects in, we know Avery is real because we actually have her eye scan. It's come under a lot of fire, but it was just really interesting. So that one was, I thought, pretty fascinating. And then also you and I were both at dinner a couple weeks ago where we got a free copy of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. I did not know that this was the number three most banned book, according to, I believe it's like the American Library Association, the ALA. And so this is released on Book.io, on Algorand. And what was really fascinating, and I love the concept, was the idea that you could have a book that because it's an NFT, it can be immutable, right? It's non-fungible. So the entire text of the book is on chain. So which means no one can come in and say, let's remove that word. Let's get rid of this because there's too much sex or there's too much, you know, critical thought processes in here. It can exist as is. And I just thought the combination of these just keep showing how much people are pushing on use cases for UI that are less about financial motivations and more to like try to solve societal problems. Any thoughts there? Couldn't agree more. I know it's highly controversial. I need to do a little bit more reading into it. But I think that what we're continuing to see is people are figuring out what exactly is going to work about Web3. They're looking beyond the initial attraction of financial speculation, or they're looking beyond the initial hype cycle into like, how do we actually leverage blockchain to make the world a better place and solve real world use cases? We're still at the very early days. It's hard to directly see which of these is going to be the next big thing. But I think the common thread of all of this is people continue building this space. People continue trying new things, trying new methodologies, trying new use cases. So we'll keep twisting the combinations of the lock to see what opens that mass gateway. Amazing. 
All right, with that, we're going to take a quick break. When we're back, Bobby Hundreds from the Hundreds to tell us everything we need to know about why and why not NFTs are a scam. We'll see you soon. Web3 offers budding opportunities for brands to create more value for their customers, engage fans, and build immersive community. But that doesn't come without its risks. Chainalysis helps Fortune 500 brands better understand and manage the risks in Web3 through proactive assessments, on-chain monitoring, investigations, training, and more, so that they can focus on building a roadmap for long-term growth. Learn more about how Chainalysis can help your company grow in Web3 at chainalysis.com slash gen C. All right, we are here with Bobby Hundreds, CEO of the Hundreds and the Atom Bomb Squad. Bobby, thank you for being here with us. So good to see you. Good to see you both, my buddies. I feel like I see you more than I see people in LA and you're on the other side <laughs> of the country. <laughs> Wait, this comes out Monday. Are you going to be at VCon? Yeah, that begins my book tour. Look at that, VCon beginning the book tour. So Bobby, thank you for being here with us. For those who may not know you, what is The Hundreds? Why did you and your partner Ben decide to start a streetwear brand 20 years ago? Give us the origin story. Oh boy. So I wrote an entire book just so I wouldn't have to answer this because I can go on for about six to eight hours straight in telling this story. You can listen to it even in an audiobook if you want to do that. But the short story long or the long story short is I didn't really feel like I necessarily belonged anywhere growing up. I was a middle child in an Asian American household, Korean immigrant parents in a neighborhood that didn't look like me. I was attracted to fringe interests like skateboarding and hardcore music and graffiti and art, and didn't quite feel like I had a home. And this actually came about in the process of me writing my story that I realized, oh, the entire purpose and reason why I built a brand was so that I can essentially create my own world and my own community. And so, you know, I was really interested in streetwear growing up because it wasn't a specific lane as far as like you didn't have to be just this or that to wear the clothing streetwear was kind of more inclusive than a lot of the other subculture fashion realms that existed at the time and i just love limited product i love the japanese attention to detail with a lot of the japanese streetwear designers obviously coming out of late 90s love supreme as the skate shop and the skate brand and i met my partner ben in law school and we were like let's do this here's a way for us to express our stories and our interests in a brand that's also paired with a media platform. Amazing. And Bobby, before we sort of get into what got you into NFTs, it seems like you've spent a lot of your career in streetwear and collectibles, also just sort of broadly in culture and in community. Whether it's streetwear or trading cards, what is the emotional connection that you have with collecting? Is it that cultural element? Is it nostalgia? Is it a little bit of gambling? Why do you think so many people are obsessed with it as someone who spent over 20 years in this space? Yeah. You know, I never even considered myself as much of a collector as I have in the last few years. I just assumed I was hoarding. Uh, you know, I was like curated hoarding. But along the way, I've amassed so much. And I just gave you guys a quick tour of my office and what it looks like. It's like a teenager's closet. It's just like a zoo of Hong Kong vinyl figures, comic books, sneakers, and fine art on the walls. And whenever people would come and tour my office, they would comment on like, well, you're a collector and you're into collectibles. And I was just like, no, not really. I mean, these are just remnants or artifacts of my past. 
And then I think over the last several years, I started to embrace the fact that, yeah, I am a collector. I am into collectibles. There's no element of it for me that touches on gambling because number one, I'm not good at gambling. I've never been. <laughs> like when I'm in Vegas, I don't even play in the slot machines. I feel like I'm just throwing money away. But collecting for me is really just about me going through my life and retouching on old memories and collecting and holding on to things that have happened that I have just like sweet nostalgia around. And so I think most of it for me is emotional. And then second, I think it also says a lot about me. And number three is that it gives me entry into different communities. You know, the other collectors that I run into and bump into, whether I'm at a, you know, I just got back from Collecticon in Fort Worth, or if I'm at an NFT conference, you know, we all have something in common that it stands outside of something like social views or political views or religion or even our work identities. You know, here is a neutral grounds where we can talk about something indirectly that we both have in common. And through that, we get to know each other as humans. And then we have the relationship to start touching on more sensitive or deeper issues. That's how Ben and I met. And so I draw it all the way back to the origins of the hundreds, my partner, Ben and I, we met in school because all the thousands of kids at Loyola Law, which is the law school that we went to, were lawyers. I was looking down at his feet and he was wearing black Jordan 4s and I was wearing these Louis Vuitton customized Air Force 1s. And, you know, Chris Rock has this really funny skit where the wives drop the husbands off at the party in the same room. And they're like, do you like baseball? I like baseball. And it's something indirectly for them to bond over. That's what it was for Ben and I, because young men can have a difficulty communicating with each other. We were like, I like your sneakers. I like your sneakers. Where'd you get your Supreme shirt? Where'd you get your A-Life tee? And then that sparked a relationship and a friendship that has spawned 20 years and a company, right? And so if collectibles have the ability and the magic to bring people together, and open up this dialogue, then we can do that through sports cards, which are littered all over my desk, and Pokemon cards and Disney cards, and then like new era caps, which I collect, and all sorts of things, including NFTs. I feel like I remember you in clubhouse rooms, early pandemic, talking about NFTs and board apes and kind of your views of these as more just a collector at the time. What was interesting to you about them? Was it just an extension of your collecting? And then tell us a little bit about the decision to decide to bring your brand, The Hundreds, into that ecosystem. We should probably begin with The Hundreds side first, because I think that predated Board 8. You know, this was the end of 2020 and when I first discovered and stumbled into what NFTs and Web3 were about. And as I write about in this new book, I was very threatened by it. I was confused. I hated the idea of it. Obviously, I come from a very physical world, physical collectibles and physical art that I've been collecting for years. The idea of digital art being passed around instead of, you know, we could just right click save as. Honestly, it kind of pissed me off. And I've noticed that whenever I feel like that anywhere in my life, that my immediate reaction is to tear it down. But then my secondary reaction is to explore. Because I'm like, there's something in there that is bothering me that I need to unwind before I can disassemble it. And so that started my journey. And then I started realizing that what Web3 was promising was establishing all kinds of new solutions that I had been looking for to rectify a lot of the frictions I'd seen in streetwear and fashion for so long. 
Number one, environmental waste issues. Number two, the idea of us spending more and more of our money on product in terms of flexing our social status or using them as Veblen goods. I was like, we can do this all digitally, natively. You know, and number three, obviously rewarding creators with royalties down the line. Like these were all things that we had addressed or tried to address over generations of streetwear that I was just like, there's always been a little bit of this imbalance and disparity between the brands and the consumers. And for the first time, we can bridge that gap, you know? And so that's why I got deeper and deeper into the space. I was just like, oh, I've always promised that The Hundreds was a brand built by the community or even owned by the community. And that was a fiction. They never really had true ownership. They had emotional ownership. They felt socially like they owned the brand, you know, but and emotionally or spiritually like they owned a brand, but they actually didn't really have any true ownership. If the brand did better in theory, they weren't necessarily benefiting financially from the upside. And so again, another Web3 promise that I was really high on at the time, still am. And so that is what started me off on the journey. Then when we were thinking about, you know, what we could do in the space, I got really into CryptoPunks and a lot of people know this story, but Gary Vee was the one who indoctrinated and radicalized me into the punks community. And I write about that in this book as well, like what that conversation was like. But my partner, Ben, and I got so rabid as to all the data associated with the punks and just sitting on the site every day and just nerding out on all this stuff. And it was really not dissimilar to anything that we do already with sneakers, already that we were doing with sports cards or with paintings that we were collecting. It was the same game, except it was faster, it was easier, there's provenance recorded, you know, all the great and beautiful parts of NFTs. And so CryptoPunks was, you know, our first real love, I would say, in NFT land. And then we started working with the Larva Labs guys. We made these collaborative hats that are part of their lore. You know, their first official, I think, merchandise or fashion collaboration with the hundreds. And then after that, we were like, we should do this ourselves. You know, we have a character already. His name is Adam Baum that everybody associates the brand with. Over 20 years, there's been hundreds, if not thousands of different iterations of this character already that has been handmade. Like we're not doing generative art. Our art's going to look the best. And there are several generations here that have different touch points and different contextual associations with Anabom already. People who are like, my favorite Anabom was the one, you know, with the leopard spots that I bought in eighth grade, you know, or, hey, last week, my girlfriend bought me the Anabom that looks like a paint splatter. And so everyone already had some kind of a relationship with Adam. We're like, we are, in essence, the world's oldest NFT brand. We've been around at that point, you know, 17, 18 years. Number two, like everyone already knows Anabom. It's a ubiquitous icon and the art is the best. So why not do this? I love it. And Team Madam Bomb, I have one that I love. Uh, I have a couple of your NFTs, but I especially love that one. The eyelashes get me. So Bobby, for our listeners, can you tell them a little bit about what this Adam Bomb collection was like? You talked about what lured you into the space of Web3. You were interested in the culture. You were interested in the ownership. You were interested in the community building that you all have been doing for almost two decades. So you launched the initial collection, I think it was 25,000, which at the time was significantly larger than what we were seeing from sort of PFP collabs, which was around the 10,000 range at that point. You launched 
And how has the atom bomb squad evolved since then? And what do you think of sort of where we are on the journey of Web3? I'm halfway through your book, so I know a little bit, but I'd love for you to share with our listeners where your project is today and secondarily, like where we are in that Web3 journey and how some of those promises are being realized. So the standard at the time was 10,000 or, you know, only force dropped a month before us and or a week before us. And I think they had like 7,500. And so that was kind of the standard for an NFT PFP style collection. And initially, you know, we were in discussions to drop 100,000 just because we had that much art to do. You know, again, we've collaborated Adam Baum with like some of the world's best artists like Kenny Sharp and Mr. Cartoon. We're like, what do we do with all this beautiful art? You know, we can make more collections along the way or we can stuff as many as we can into this first collection so that it can live a lot longer. And that was really the idea for us to launch with 25,000. In number one, we didn't think we were ever going to sell that many. The website was set up that, you know, for all the bombs that didn't sell within a specific period, I think we said that we were going to keep them up for sale for a few days. And then whatever didn't sell, we we're going to blow them up. That's why they're bombs. And then that was the supply. But we're like, look, in the rare chance that we sell 25,000 of these bombs, Number one, that will be more inclusive. More people will be able to come in. You know, our goal wasn't necessarily to cater to or focus on the NFT or crypto endemic community. Our entire purpose with that project was to onboard the non-native streetwear fans, sneaker collectors. We're like the physical collectors on the outside world who've already been doing this. In fact, a lot of the NFT trading had been inspired by what these streetwear kids had done. I'm like, those kids need to come in here and show everybody how it's done. So if we have 25,000, there's going to be a greater chance that can come in. It's probably not going to go as through the roof as some of the more limited projects. But in return, the project will be more sustainable and will last longer as a brand. And so in the rare case at 25,000 saw, of course, we go to launch on whatever that August morning was in 2021. And we sell out in 40 minutes. It was like the craziest thing we've ever seen. I think it was like the peak day of OpenSea trading for 2021. There was an art blocks drop that day as well. And so there's like a crazy gas war that was going on. And so we're like, okay, great. There's 25,000 of these out there. Now we have to do a little bit of PR, a little bit of damage control because the expectations are going to be really high. But then we're also going to have to start communicating what this project is truly about, you know. And so that first month was really hectic. Everybody wanted to immediately flip and trade them and pump and dump them like they had been doing because of Board Ape Summer. You know, we're coming in at the tail end. It was the end of August. So now we're looking at September of 2021. And board apes have dropped in April. So that entire summer feeling, everyone is just riding high. And they're looking at this collection saying, number one, they just collaborated with the CryptoPunks and with the board apes. So we had both of those communities coming in. 137 did a really nice write-up. So now we have Gary's community coming in. So all three of like the biggest mobs are looking at Adam Bomb with like, you know, just heart eyes and like their tongues like wagging out of their mouths. And so we were like, okay, first we have to pump the brakes on this entire thing, because if we just give everybody everything all at once, they're going to leave and the whole thing's going to collapse like a house of cards within like two days. So we did something that was really controversial. We withheld metadata. We withheld the art for a while and we gave people time. It was almost like escrow. Like we wanted to just give people time to discover the project, do their own research. First, we gave them the art and said, we're not going to tell you how rare it is. 
And then, you know, there was a lot of grumbling, a lot of people very angry. And they're like, what is this? A lot of people left at the time. But the people who stuck around, they dug through our website, they ran through our interviews, and they're like, okay, even if this particular bomb turns out to not be very rare or expensive, I have an emotional connection with it because I've read the lore and the story. The lore is in the metadata. There's a lot of content built and produced around it online. So now I have like a different type of relationship with this art as opposed to a metric that they just see on rarity tools. A couple of weeks later, then we gave everybody the metadata. And of course, as we expected, a lot of people were like, okay, yeah, my bomb stunk, so I'm out. But then there were a lot of people who were like, okay, it's not as rare or as expensive as I wanted it to be, but I think I'm going to hold on to it because for three weeks or four weeks, I've been investigating about it. And I just really like the art of this one, right? And so even though that wasn't enough time, in theory, I would have loved to have done that over the course of 20 years. We had only a month to do it. I think it worked out in the long run because we're standing here in 2023 and our floor never really reached the heights of some of those quote unquote blue chip projects, but it's also never really quite moved. If you look at our scale, it's just kind of been the steady line the entire time. And I've been promising this from the beginning that I'm like, we are probably one of the most sustainable projects because we have the longest history. We will have the longest future. You know, there was one of our collector in our community yesterday was saying something like 70% of the bombs have never even moved. And so most people who have a bomb and still I run into these people every day, they're like, I own like 40 bombs, 20 bombs. I have five bombs. I just keep them. I don't know why. And I'm like, I think because you know that we're just going to stick around for a really long time and there's going to be more that comes from it. And to answer your last question, where we're at today with all this stuff, look, we always looked at it as more collectibles first, building the culture and community first, you know, the skyrocketing secondary market prices. That might come later, I hope, like everybody wins in the end in some way if they wanted to trade or flip and leave the community at one point. But really what it was for us was establishing a really organic, logical, meaningful foundation for the brand and the project before it started, you know, turning on the secondary market. We just need time. Yeah, Bobby, so you just said 70% of the bombs haven't moved. I know mine haven't moved much, though I know I got a few on secondary because of the fast sellout. I just checked on OpenSea, and on OpenSea alone, it looks like Atom Bomb Squad, your original collection, has done over $42 million of trading activity. So it's still a pretty significant number. So some real numbers in terms of who's actually trading this. And of course, that's like gone up and down over time, but it's definitely not nothing. Yeah, that's cool. You know, I don't even know how to compute those numbers. And everyone at the beginning that were trying to fund the project or were saying like, oh, you got all this money and what are you going to do with it? I remember that first day, how many people were jumping to our Discord saying, when Lambo? Because there was another project that had preceded ours where people were buying Lamborghinis with it. And I was like, number one, I'm not really a car guy. But I think just to put everything into perspective for those people, you know, we had been working on that collection since February of that year. So it'd been about six, seven months of us working on this project and not really intentionally leaning into physical clothing. That was kind of the point. That was like what the white paper was about was maybe we need to create less physical waste and lean more into digital identity and digital collections, digital collectibles. And so we didn't make as much clothing in that year. And everyone's like, you made X amount of millions of dollars selling this NFT project. And we're like, yeah, but 
We also run a company where we make a lot more than this. I think you have to put it into perspective. So everyone's like, oh, you made money. I'm like, I actually kind of lost money in the long run by doing this stuff, you know? And so I was like, oh, okay. So just to put everything to perspective, you know, for us, it was more or less a quote unquote investment also, like an investment into our future, investment into the brand. It helped open up a lot of doors for Adam Bomb that, you know, I can get into, but that's really going to be where the future of much of my work goes into is continuing to reinforce and unfurl that IP. I think, Bobby, you approach this like through the lens of someone who had run business. And I think that was one of the things that I think was interesting is you were one, an established brand coming in. And there were other established brands who had done some projects, some of which I'm sure Avery worked with. But I was just noticing, like, I went really deep on your white paper and you do write a lot in general. So I think like there's a lot of thinking there. But the fact that you in the white paper talk about tokenized shopping, which then you were really one of the first brands to bring out in the white paper, talking about the idea of sharing royalties on those characters that get on physical shirts, the ways in which you architected a kind of community up, but also understood the utility of what you as a business could offer to the community just felt a lot more thoughtful than a lot of what was happening, which was, you know, like all props to the Yuga guys, but it took them quite a long time to figure out what a business could be. Whereas I think you came through the lens, I'm building business for 20 years already. How do I structure what I as a consumer would want out of this? For those who don't know, I think you guys were the first to do like token gated shopping with Shopify, which I just remember being a holder was super exciting. You know, the first shirt I bought was the NFTs are a scam shirt that you guys released. And your book is titled, which we'll talk about in a second. Was that part of the intention all along, which was how do we bring people through the journey of what it is to be a hundreds participant? And then how do I really reward them in ways that feel more substantive than maybe the like, hey, we're just going to airdrop you a token? Yeah, yeah. And to your point, yes, you know, it's been 20 years. We're celebrating our 20th this July. And the entire purpose and the meaning behind the hundreds, even the name itself is in reference to hundreds of people as far as what our community looks like. It's always been a community-driven, community-powered, community-led brand. And so when we got into Web3, that was the part of it that really tantalized me the most was how can we best benefit the community? How can we make them feel not only seen and included, but really rewarded? for being able, you know, being a part of this journey. And I talk about this in the white paper. I talk about it in the book a bit. But again, you know, me coming from fashion and streetwear for my entire life, I've been walking around wearing other people's brands and logos on my chest like a walking billboard. And I was doing it because of the clout associated with it. There's social value that comes with it, prestige. But there isn't anything in terms of me benefiting financially or getting some kind of leg up in my career or in my life, right, in my personal life. And so this was an avenue that I was like, for the first time, I think we can repair a lot of that inequity that we had seen and we continue to see. You know, when Nike is like this massive, the biggest sportswear brand on the planet now, and people are still wearing the shoes every day, influencing for them you know, and they don't really have to pay a lot of their influencers, they can just seed out product, and they continue to get bigger. It was very reminiscent to me of what big tech had been doing over the last 10 years, you know, when people were looking at Web3 to fix a lot of those inequalities, inequity in tech. And so I was like, I'm not in tech. I'm in streetwear and fashion. I'm in art. I'm around artists all day. Now, how can we use the same model to address what they're going through? 
When you were on stage with us at Consensus, you told this great story about you and Betty going to see Air and how much of a Web3 story that was. Could you tell that again for our audience? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah, this is a great example, right? So Betty and I get invited to a screening of Air and I was in a room with 99% streetwear sneaker collectors. I saw a lot of my friends from the streetwear world. And um, for those people who haven't seen the movie, I walked out of it and Betty and I looked at each other and we're like, that couldn't have been a more Web3 creator royalties movie. The premise of it is basically the Air Jordan Nike shoe deal, where 40 years ago, Viola Davis's character, who's Michael Jordan's mother, insisted when Michael was signing this deal for Air Jordan that he would get a cut of every shoe going forward. And that was revolutionary at the time. Nike did not want to do it. No sneaker deals did do it. But of course, it went through and it transformed what sneaker and athletic shoe endorsement deals looked like forever. It actually disrupted a lot of how that model worked. And there's this really amazing line at the end of the movie where someone internally at Nike says to Matt Damon's character, Sonny Vaccaro, who in theory, according to this movie, came up with this entire thing. But he says to Sonny Vaccaro, like, you know, is this going to work out? And Matt Damon's character says, yeah, I think this time it's going to work out for everyone, right? And I think the subtext being it's not going to just be Nike who wins this time and Michael Jordan who makes a modicum amount of money. It's like we're all going to benefit from this. And they did. Right. Air Jordan exceeded all expectations like a hundredfold. You know, it started off that legacy. Air Jordan became its own brand. Nike won the shoe wars. And it's insane to me that 40 years later, we are watching this movie and everyone in the audience is gasping and wooing and awing at the idea of the artist or the influencer is now benefiting in the upside along with the brand and the parent company, right? Everyone's like, whoa, what a great idea. I can't believe this happened. Of course this should work. I'm like, that's a 40-year-old idea and we're still stunned by the idea of that, you know? And so it's just crazy that we're watching it happen again and it's still not normalized. However, having said that, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck's new production company who made that movie, the point of their philosophy is that they are letting the creators and the artists also benefit alongside them. So the producers, the directors, the writers. I think down to hair and makeup, it's like everyone who works on the film gets like a small taste. Everyone who works on the film gets to benefit. And so I think, look, the way that my book ends is where I talk about NFTs. I'm like, NFTs were obviously never just about these digital flippy JPEGs. It's really more the overarching philosophy, right? The mission statement of everybody should win, like Matt Damon's character says, right? And so we're already seeing that bleed through. We're seeing it bleed through in film. It's already in the water. You're going to see it happen in restaurants. You're going to see it happen with streetwear and fashion brands. We were just the first to really experiment with it. It's going to get crystallized and perfected with time. Nike's coming through with Dot Swoosh, as everybody knows. This is their first attempt at addressing a lot of this a lot of these problems that we've been seeing in the past. And I think we're looking at a new way of building brands and doing business over the next generation. And you can call it Web3. You can say that NFT started. You can say that Air Jordan was really the first ones to think of this idea. But this has been going on for generations. I think now it's everyone's getting up to pace and on the same page of, oh, right, this has been totally unfair. There's a lot of wealth disparity. There's a lot of power inequality in tech, in fashion, in streetwear, in all of it. And so this is our chance to readdress that. 
Amazing. I definitely need to see air. Now you've given it a great pitch, but let's talk about a different form of entertainment. Let's talk about your book. NFTs are a scam. NFTs are the future. I'm about halfway through it. What's sort of the TLDR of the book? Why should people go sprint to their nearest bookstore to get a copy? Okay. So if you're interested in NFTs, it's right up your alley. Obviously, I don't think there's a lot of NFT literature written out there. It's not told from the textbook perspective. It's not like this scholastic, like college reading type of material. It's very narrative based. It's my personal journey and what it looked like as a human being walking in and just kind of looking at it as objectively as I could, you know, testing a lot of it, poking and pulling at all the weird parts of NFTs and Web3. We get into the fun, dramatic stuff. We also get into the really meaningful stuff. And so I think that's really interesting. You're going to see a lot of key players in this world, like Gary Vaynerchuk, you're going to see Betty, you're going to see Mel. Gordon from Board Apes is also interviewed. And so there's profiles that are interspliced between the chapters. I get a little bit philosophical with different parts of NFTs and crypto. I compare it or draw allusions to religion and cultism. You know, I talk about what the death of NFTs looks like. I talk about the creator royalties argument. So I think it's going to be really native and familiar for that audience. Now, if you're not into NFTs, I think you might want to read the book because what I noticed, and this is really what the takeaway from the book is, and I've been saying this time and again, it's actually not about NFTs. It's about being slow to judgment. Right. And what I saw happen right when I entered into Web3 in early 2021 and of 2020 was that people were hasty to grab one of two polls. They're either on our side, which was pro NFT and just saying this is the absolute solution and the answer. Everyone in Web2 or stuck back there is going to die. We are going to become the richest people on the planet, generational wealth. And it was like fanatical, zealous, crazy, like we we're speaking in tongues. And then on the other side of it, people, if you weren't into it, you hated it. And you're like, that's an absolute scam. There's no redeeming qualities in NFTs or Web3. Everyone is cheating each other. It's just about gambling. And the reality was that the truth was probably neither of those things. It was maybe a little bit of a mix. In fact, we weren't even there yet. And so I was noticing that over time that nothing was actually progressing. You know, we kind of got stuck in this 2021 model because everyone who was pro NFT held so fast to that definition. So this is exactly what it is. And we can't move from this. This is what it's for. And everyone over here was just like, well, that sucks. I'm not into it. So it's not for me. And the entire space just stopped. And that's where it's been kind of ever since. Now what we're seeing happening in the bear market is that everyone's loosening up their grips a little bit right? The pro NFT people are acknowledging and admitting, okay, some parts of that were a little soft and fuzzy. I'm a little bit humbled. Maybe I'm open to fixing some things. I asked the other day on Twitter, you know, in order for NFTs to proceed, in my opinion, we might need to redefine what NFTs are, even if that means adjusting some of that core definition. Are you okay with that? If I had asked that question a year or two ago, the answer would have been resoundingly no. Everyone would be like, no, this is what NFTs are. But today, every single response was, you're absolutely right, we may need to redefine, right? Now, on the anti and against NFT side over here, the people who believe that it was just a scam, they're also loosening up their grips a little bit. They're a little bit more disarmed, you know, because people aren't coming in and Bible thumping them with NFTs or the solution. They feel like they won the debate. And so they're coming in a little bit with their chest puffed out. And they're a little bit more receptive to the conversation, right? And so my first book stop was at a bookstore with a bunch of authors and people from the publishing world who are not native to NFTs and aren't really into it. 
And the amount of conversations and the abundance that came out of those discussions, I haven't had in two years where they were laymen and, you know, a lot of them were Luddites coming at me saying, okay, okay, that was kind of silly, right? And I was just like, oh my God, a lot of it was kind of crazy. And they're like, okay, phew, thanks. Thanks for just acknowledging that. I'm like, but how about this part? And like, oh yeah, that can make sense. I'm like, doesn't that seem like it would be fair? Oh, totally. Well, there's a technology for that. Have you ever thought about, you know, what blockchain owner, oh, blockchain. I don't want to talk about blockchain. I'm like, well, this is what it's really, it's like a, you know, we're just recording. It's like a ledger. It's like a, a receipt. You know, everyone could acknowledge it. Oh, I could see the use for that. I'm like, great. So we're now reaching a point in the culture where I'm like, okay, now we can proceed. Now we can have progress because both sides are talking again, right? And so this is really a call to everyone, not just in NFTs or Crypto Web 3, not just in tech. It's a call for everybody across the board to not be so quick to grab your polls and make judgments. Everyone is so fast to make a verdict now. You know, they want to do it with tech and they're wanting to declare, and understandably so, why AI is good or bad. They want to make a judgment right away. But that stunts and abbreviates what it could be, right? And so we'll never see a fully formed version of NFTs if no one's going to discuss it and they're going to hold fast to the polls. And we do that with people every day. We want to cancel and write off verdicts and make judgments about who they are. And then we don't allow them to grow and mature to fully form either. So I feel like this is a problem that plagues everything on the planet right now. And that's why culture to me has been relatively stagnant for the last 10 to 15 years is because nobody is giving anything time to grow. And so the takeaway from the book is we are still early. I know it's very cliche to say, but we are still very early. We're only a few years into NFTs. And for everyone to try to declare one way or the other, it's a scam or it's the future. I don't necessarily think you're looking at it the right way. We just don't know yet. Bobby, we're really seeing your middle child come out. You're playing that mediator <laughs> between these two polarized sides, Always. which I love. Yeah. <laughs> um, just getting everybody on the same page. I want to commend you for the unbiased perspective in writing the book. I was actually picking it up thinking it was going to be very pro NFTs. The three of us obviously all are very pro NFTs in our personal life. But I think from you know your life as a CEO and as a business person and as a leader of a brand, you have to realize that 99% of people certainly are not NFT native. There are a lot of people who are turned off by that type of vocabulary, even if they are enticed by some of the benefits and aligned incentives that you're talking about, just like what you just talked about with Air Jordan. I think that's something that people inherently understand and those values are of fairness are important. The sort of wrapping of the complicated technology and the high pricing and all of that can feel like a turnoff to people. But ultimately, that's not really what the future of the internet is about, right? It's about creating a more equitable internet. And you just mentioned AI. AI is the hot topic du jour. And you've been around for plenty of trends. I know on our side, because I'm working in a marketing agency, we're constantly needing to advise and help our clients understand what's real, what's not, separate the signal from the noise. And right now, there's so much noise around AI. And there's also a lot of signal. What's your take there? You talked about how with the Atom Bomb Squad collection, you didn't use generative AI for it. And I haven't heard you talk much publicly around your take on how ChatGPT is changing the world. So we'd love to get your two cents. Well, Sam and I are actually in an AI group chat 
together. So he knows a lot of my thoughts already. Avery, I'm so sorry that we have not invited. Um, there's another group chat. <laughs> As if we needed another one. <laughs> yeah, you definitely don't need this one. So speaking of this group chat, that's a great way to answer the question. It moves at a glacial pace, this group chat. And I love it because I think that's how we should be approaching, again, our perspectives, our understandings, especially with tech. And I know there's this urgency right now because the consequences can be dire, right, with AI. And I think we can all acknowledge that. So everyone wants to hurry up and figure out what the future holds. But again, the one lesson that I've learned in being in Web3 over the last few years is it is okay to just take a moment, sit on the side of the river and just watch it and see where is the moment. Number one, for you to jump in, like I'm seeing a lot of NFT influencers and artists and creators saying, okay, there's not a lot of energy in Web3 right now. I kind of want to hop into AI. I'm like, okay, that's fine. That's fair. But don't force it. You know, they're like, well, I just don't see my moment yet. And I was like, well, NFTs were around for four years before you got in, right? Like crypto has been around for over a decade before you got in. So it might take some time. It just because you don't get it or see the opening right now doesn't mean it's not there. But also from a perspective of if you were really trying to wrap your mind around it, it's going to be too much. The information is going to flatten you if you're going to try to digest it all at once right now, right? And so we're just observing and watching what's going on, commenting a little bit and just waiting. You know, I think I'm an optimist always. I'm like a techno optimist. And so, you know, a lot of parts of it that people are fearful or anxious about, I feel like I have pretty fair rebuttals to. You know, there are people who are like, oh, we're not going to know what's real anymore online. And I'm like, we've never really been able to tell what's real online, you know, whether it was photoshopped or airbrushed or filtered, or it was just a presentation of self that you would express on your social media that everyone's like, that's not really what your life is like. Like everyone has been storytelling. We all turned into brands at some point over the last five to seven years. We're all good at marketing ourselves and portraying the personalities that we aren't necessarily. And so like, we are already doing this. I don't know about all, but a lot, yes. <laughs> sure, of course. But, you know, having been like a media student, once it goes through the lens of media, it already becomes distorted, right? And so I think we are already approaching much of life from a skeptical, cynical point of view at the worst. But we are looking at it from like, okay, what's happening on the screen is a little bit of theater, right? And so AI maybe accelerates the design and the production of that. But I don't think it's necessarily going to make us any more cynical or look at the world with any more like of a lens of like, this is all fiction. I think we already kind of do that. And there's like maybe beautiful, hopeful parts of it, which is, you know, we are going to be maybe more concerned with what's happening in the physical world around us with our own personal relationships instead of being concerned with something that's happening to somebody on the other side of the planet that doesn't have anything to do with our business. You know, maybe it'll be a more of a return to local politics because we won't know what's happening in national politics and we really won't, won't be able to trust that. Not that we really can these days anyway, but maybe there'll just be so much distrust at that point that we're like, okay, all I care about is that my community is taken care of. That's not my business what's happening like in that town over there right now. I need to focus on this. I don't know. But the one thing I do know is that we don't know, right? One thing that's really interesting, for seven years, I taught a college course on the history of media and propaganda. And one of the things that I charted in that course was that most major shifts in technology that affected media took somewhere between 13 to 15 years for mass adoption, whether it's the printing press, radio, TV, internet, cell phones, all of these kind of major shifts. We've all seen autocomplete on Google searches now for years. 
So there has been artificial intelligence now for a couple of years that we've been engaged with day to day, but especially AGI, which is like this new thing. I still think there's so much hype. I also know a lot of folks in the brand world who are already having fatigue with it because it already feels like it's so much. And I still need to put so much of a human touch on it that it does feel, I think, a little bit that we are trying to make something happen so hard that we don't know what it is. And so I do think there's something about it. And I think Bobby articulated our group chat correctly, which is, of course, happening on AOL Instant Messenger. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but it is the kind of thing where like sometimes it'll be two days before someone makes a post, you know, and then someone like sees something and then we kind of talk about it and then we all go back and do our lives. And there is something nice about no one here is super rushing into how do I monetize this? How do I have it change? One thing I thought was really interesting is that you wanted to use a Bobby voice clone to read your audiobook and your publisher said no. Yeah. I love the AGI that's allowing you to do voice, right? And so I've been using it to read my sub stacks because that's an extra 40 minutes to an hour where I have to read aloud what I've written so that people can listen to in podcast form. And so then it got to releasing my book and the publishers, you know, expecting that I'm going to go into a recording booth and read the audiobook for one to two weeks, which for me is just a hellish performance. Like what you have to deal with listening to me talk for about 15 minutes. Imagine me having to listen to myself doing that for about 20 hours. And I was like, I'm absolutely not interested in doing that. I hated doing it for my first book. I know it's a requisite, but if there's any way around it. So I was like, why can't AI just do it? And I had AI just record my voice real quick. And like my plea to my publisher was in the AI voice. It sounded exactly like I'm sounding now. In fact, it sounded better. Like my intonations, my speeds were all consistent. And they were like, we can't, we won't do this. You know, they won't allow it. The publishers will get really upset by it. And I'm like, because why? Because I'm replacing my own voice. And I'm like, well, if you don't want to read it, you should hire someone to do it. And I'm like, I get it. And then I was told that Amazon Audible won't even publish your book through their service if any of it's done with AI right now, which is just mind-numbing to me. I think that's got to have to change. And of course, I'm sensitive to creators and artists keeping their jobs, but you really can't stop a lot of technology. I mean, Photoshop accelerated, expedited so much of the busy work that a lot of low-level designers used to have to do. I used to have to do a lot of that stuff. Now there's just like auto tracing and content aware fills. You know, you can clip immediately through your iPhone, which saves me like so much time. You can just hold down your photos and then it'll clip around your silhouettes. I don't know if anyone knows this already. That used to be a graphic designer's job that would take anywhere from 40 minutes to an hour to do. And now you can free them up so that number one, maybe they can spend more time with their family or just doing what they want to do recreationally. Or if it's for work, you know, they can use that 40 minutes to an hour to actually work on more artistic, creative, ingenious, innovative work that we really do need, not for a body to sit in a chair and to click like this on a mouse for 40 minutes. It just seems like a waste. Bobby, I want to ask you what might be a bit of a controversial question. Oh boy, here we go. Here we go. Well, in my opinion, like streetwear was born from underrepresented communities, right? So like from every like James Jebbia or Sean Stussy that you had, you had the Heron Prestons and like the Hiroshi Fujiwaras and Nigo and Virgil and yourself, all these people who I think utilize your backgrounds of culture to help build what is a much more robust version of culture than many that you see in homogeneous societies. I guess I'm a little worried that in Web3 that I still see a lot of white guys in hoodies at every event and buying every collection and always being number go up type personalities. And I'm just wondering, 
can we create a true Web3 cultural movement if we don't start really expanding out the people who are contributing and also being successful, right? Because like Larva Labs, Yuga, Doodles, Moonbirds, all started by white guys, right? And are the biggest collections out there. And so I'm just wondering through this, because I just come from New York hip hop, where it's like every one of my icons doesn't look like me. But that's also what I loved about it was I got to sort of participate in someone else's vision of the world. And I would love to know your thoughts on that through the lens of how we make Web3 better. Yeah, yeah. First of all, there's a lot of diversity, Sam. There's penguins and there's monkeys and there's bombs, okay? Lions. Be friends. Yetis. <laughs> there's BFFs. Uh, yeah, yetis. I mean, it's not just white dudes, Sam, please. Avery, how have we gone 26 episodes without mentioning super yetis? <laughs> That's a great question. I'm glad we fixed that. We need to bring everyone back to just discuss what happened there. Of course, that was an issue that I'm always sensitive to. Obviously, me being an Asian American, you know, son of immigrants in this country and not seeing our people necessarily represented fairly or equally across media, across jobs, career opportunities. And so it's always been in my language. It's always in my purview of like trying to see where we can rectify a lot of those wrongs, you know. And so with Web3, I think it was especially accentuated the fact that there was a majority, a specific looking type of person in this space, you know, and so that was another impetus for us getting in was our community actually doesn't really look like that. And they don't necessarily come from those neighborhoods. And, you know, even when I'm thinking for myself, right, I have never been quite versed in the vocabulary of tech or finance. Those worlds have just never been accommodating to me. I've been allergic to that language. You know, I've never been welcomed into that room. And so if anything came at me from those two vantage points of tech or finance, I was just like, I don't want anything to do with it. And number one, that was partly my insecurity. But number two, nobody was helping onboard me. Like, I remember when I learned how to surf, a surfer came along was my surf friend was just like, I'm gonna take you out I'm gonna show you to do this. And now I'm a brown person in the water surfing, right? There just aren't enough of those people doing it in the tech and finance space. Well, along comes Web3 and NFTs. And now there's a side door to get into those rooms. I don't have to be literate in tech and finance, but I do have to be versed in culture and art and creation and innovation. And that's the language I'm pretty fluent in. And so now here's an opportunity where a bunch of people who look like me or come from our backgrounds, from our communities and our experiences can now lend to the conversation. And that's what I was really, really excited about. You know, we wouldn't have been able to access tech and finance otherwise, but maybe through the filter, through this cheat code of Web3, we can get people in the door. And we did, right? And so people like me are now showing up on tech and finance podcasts or speaking in tech and finance rooms, meeting a lot of tech and finance people. And I'm like, these are the two groups that have amassed all the power and the wealth over the last couple of generations. And I've never had any access to them, but because of Web3 and NFTs, I'm now at the crypto conferences or the tech and finance conferences. So it's amazing. But there weren't enough of me that came in, right? And my hope was that we were gonna be able to onboard a lot more people who look like that into Adam Bomb Squad and to NFTs. And in the beginning of the book, I say, look, my disclaimer is I do get a lot of things wrong. You have to remember, I was writing some of this stuff two years ago. Some of it might still materialize, but some of it was clearly wrong. And one of the things that I think that I got the most wrong was how hopeful and faithful I was that we were going to see people on board really quickly, 
right? And, you know, at that time in early 2021, I thought we were going to get a lot more streetwear kids in. It just seemed like there was going to be a logical fit. The UX UI wasn't really that friendly. You know, there was a little bit of scamming happening. But I think actually what turned a lot of people off was that Bored Ape Summer because the narrative became so strongly about just flipping and day trading these like penny stocks, essentially, like everyone's just going there doing what they had natively been doing in tech and finance for the last 10 years, that those people just dominated and owned that space. And so then all of a sudden, okay, we're back in a world where we're not necessarily welcome. We don't understand what's going on. I came here to talk about art. I came here to talk about community building, but all these people, even if on the face of it, they seem like they want to discuss those things, really what they want to talk about is just making money. And it's still a bummer because some of the group chats I'm in or were in and I had to leave, I thought that they were about those things too, about representation of fairness, artists, like all that stuff. And then all they want to talk about is trading Pepe coins or whatever. And again, no judgment to that. That's always existed, right? We've always seen coin trading, all coin trading, like that existed before NFTs. And that should continue to exist. But those people for the last couple of years were, you know, feigning interest in, oh, we want to support the arts and it's about the art. And I'm like, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was just about people making money. And so that's what I think kept a lot of people out. I think a lot of them are still going to come in. I think Nike's going to do a really good job of it but I'm here for that. And that's why I'm sticking around. I do remember when there was, I went really deep into Mebits for a while and I kind of love the Mebits and I still have a bunch of them. But I remember always getting so angry when it was the darker skin Mebits were always on the floor. And I didn't understand, like, we're supposed to be one thing. And yet even in your buying behaviors, you can't get over your biases. Yeah, I addressed that in the book. And I remember the rebuttal to that was, oh no, I'm just buying a punk that looks like me. And I'm like, your punk's a blue alien. <laughs> right, it's an elephant, yeah. Yeah, sorry, that doesn't fly. Yeah, so I love the elephant me bits, total side note. I do love that. The me bits were great, dude. That was a really, really fun day. But it is something that I think, look, it's a larger discussion that obviously is continuing to rise up and forever will be. It's something that as an artist, we're trying to do is if the line is crooked, we're trying to flatten it and straighten it out. If the line is straight, we're trying to make it crooked. And that's the one part of reality that's just never squared up to me is racism or discrimination or how there's such disparity or inequality between people who look different. And I've been in some like really weird discussions in Web3. You know, I'm a little bit safer coming from the streetwear space just because it is a lot more racially diverse, but really just ethnically diverse, background diverse. And so I feel like a lot more comfortable in that space. And when I entered into Web3, I got into some really weird discussions, like really sitting at a table with tech people who were saying, so you think diversity is good? And I'm like, well, oh my God, <laughs> holy shit. Like, I never even thought of the possibility that it would be a bad thing. It's a bad thing to you. And they're like, yeah, of course, you know. And they're wearing off-white sneakers when they say that. Exactly. And it's so foreign to me. I was just like, I've been broadsided by conversations like that. And that's just me being naive to the people who exist in that space. And so again, it's important for me to be in those rooms, right? Because they're not hearing my perspective or the other side of that either. They're just hearing all the time that diversity is a bad thing because those are the people to hang out with. And since we are never allowed into the room or we never come in, they're like, well, this must be the truth. And the same for me, I'm over there all the time going, I don't want anything to do with tech and finance people, but then I'm also not learning anything that they might have to say, right? And so I think, look, of course I champion diversity. I think I'm all for broken walls. I'm all for people being in places that they don't belong. 
you know, and I think NFTs are a scam, NFTs are the future are like a really small microcosm, microversion of that, of people saying, I don't want to listen to each other. And now that they are, I feel like we're in a much more hopeful place. Amazing. Bobby, I want to end off by asking, you've been using the past tense a lot in this interview and you've been saying like, was, this is how it used to be. This is how, you know, that your journey has been. What would be your guidance for brands or intellectual property owners who are thinking about this Web3 space? Did they miss the boat? Is it too late? Is it the time to jump in and make a surprise move? Should they collab? What would be your guidance to some of these folks as they're questioning the future of Web3 and the future of NFTs? I think since the very start of Web3, much of the tension and the frustration has been around misaligned expectations. And so what happened was when NFTs were kind of popping off at the end of 2020, they were really fun. And a lot of people were minting artwork and the creations and making a little bit of money. People like supporting artists and it was great. But then that summer, there were now expectations of you're going to do XYZ for me and I'm going to make XYZ money. Now I'm an investor. I'm not a collector. Now I own your company. I'm not just in your community. And so everyone's expectations were off. And that, I think, was detrimental in the long run to the sustainability of NFTs because it was like the Tower of Babel. Like everyone's speaking a completely different vernacular and the whole thing just falls apart. If you want to enter Web3, number one, and I've been saying this since the very beginning, if you have no interest or curiosity in this space and what it can do, like just read your intuitions and nothing about it is tantalizing or interesting or sensational, don't even bother. I've been saying this my whole life. Same with when I was coming up in streetwear and a lot of kids were like, oh my God, you're making so much money doing streetwear. And I'm like, ah, yeah, kind of. But like, it's a lot of work and I do it because I just love doing it. I always say I couldn't help but not, right? Like I had to, it felt compelled to do that type of work. And I noticed that right away. It was like true love with Web3 and NFTs immediately off the bat. I was like, oh, there's something here and I'm gonna take the radio apart and figure out how to put it back together. I'm like, just that kid with this. But there are other avenues, like at that time, golf was getting really big. And everyone was like, hey, you guys should start a golfing brand. It's huge in Korea right now. It's like our friends, Malbon Golf, like we're doing really well. And I was like, that sounds great. I know I could crush it. I have no interest in golf. I'm not a golfer. Until I reach that point to one day where I'm like, oh, this is the opening for me to get into. Then I can capitalize on it. Otherwise, there's other places to make money. And same with Web3. We saw a lot of people get interested and intrigued. You know, because they were like, this is where a lot of people are making money. I see people doing that today with Pepe, right? A lot of people hitting me up that haven't been into NFTs for a year who are like, hey, what coins should I be buying right now? And I'm like, it looks like these people that you're following on Twitter are getting rich overnight by buying this coin. Oh, I bought it for this much and now I made $100,000. But what you're not seeing is also what you didn't see with NFTs was we built that collection for eight months and spent all the time in the clubhouses and in the discords and in the WhatsApps going through this, building connections. And by the time our project released, then we had all these relationships in the community bot, right? Same thing with Pepe is that these people have been day trading coins forever and watching and they sit and they talk about it all day. I'm like, do you want to do that? right? If you want to be on the next Pepe, you have to commit your life to doing this. So if there's no part of you that wants to do it, don't do it. And so then the other side of it is that I think we just need to better align expectations. If you're coming into Web3 saying this is going to save my business, oh, we're going to be the next board ape, chances are it probably won't. So are you still interested? Well, yeah, I'm interested because of what blockchain ownership can do. I'm really interested because of 
the community benefits it could provide, the membership privileges, right? We had a great call with Starbucks Odyssey yesterday. Starbucks is a great example. They're making a fun game out of it. They don't really use the word NFT. You know, people are just collecting stamps along their journey. If you want to do something fun like that, that's for your community, then definitely do it. So my approach to everything tech, and this has been since I was getting hit up about my blogging in the early 2000s. Then when I was a Snapchat influencer, every social that's come along the way, I speak on panels and everyone's like, you're the biggest guy on Snapchat. How do you do it? Like, number one, you have to identify whatever the friction or frustration is in your existing business. And then number two, find the tech. Or if you stumble upon a tech, that can be the solution to that. Then use it as the tool. But don't look at the tech as the actual answer. So I'm doing the same thing with AI. I don't really see an inroads for me right now. There is no real frustration that I'm seeing in my current job and my passion that I think AI can address effectively at this point, right? Same thing with TikTok. I've largely sat TikTok out. Everybody wanted me to do TikTok, kill it. Hey, you're perfect for this. I'm like, it's just not my native language. I have no curiosity, no interest. I like watching it, but no part of me wants to participate. When I watch a movie at home, or watch a TV show, there's a part of me that says, I want to write. I want to participate. I see an inroads for me. And so that's why I do TV writing a movie. But I don't do that for TikTok. I might not do it for AI. Web3, I saw it and I saw that how we could affect and fix some of the problems that we were having with streetwear. So I did it. But if you don't see that with Web3, then don't do it. Otherwise, use it as a tool, make a lot of money doing it. So Bobby, thank you so much for joining us today. I know your book comes out Tuesday, May 16th. Is that correct? Yeah. So where can people get it and where can they go see you on your book tour? And where can they learn more about Bobby Hundreds if they live under a rock and don't follow you already? So please support the book. The pre-orders really go a long way. The book drops tomorrow, Tuesday, May 16th. You can buy it online now wherever you buy your book. So Amazon, if you don't want to support Amazon, Barnes & Noble. If you don't want to support Barnes & Noble, also your indie booksellers, all the bookstores in your neighborhood, if they don't carry it, you can call them and ask them to stock. You can buy it directly from them. But please try to buy in this first week. Tomorrow, Tuesday night, is the actual official release at Barnes & Noble at The Grove if you're here in L.A., Please come out and I have Sean Weatherspoon and Jeff Staple from the streetwear world. Betty is going to be on stage. And I don't want this book tour to be a Q&A where it's just me as the leading voice in the true Web3 spirit. I want these to feel like a town hall, kind of like back in the clubhouse days. And so I'm asking all of our NFT friends to show up. We're going to pass the mic around. I'm really trying not to lead the conversation. And we kind of want to do like a state of the union on NFTs and Web3 with where we're at. So if you have any interest, if you're in that world, come out. If you're curious about NFTs and Web3, you're going to listen to some of the brightest minds talk about where we're at at this point in time. So that's tomorrow at the Barnes & Noble at the Grove. I'm going to be at VCon. I think I'm speaking on Friday with Scooter Braun. And then on Sunday, I will be in New York. So May 21st, Sunday, New York at Housing Works. Um, there's a few different ones. Make sure you're going to the right one on the flyer. It's the one in Soho, by the way. It's the one in Soho. I'll be speaking with Fuo and Fiocious will be on stage with me, Jeff Carvalho, who's a mutual friend of all of ours. And so we're going to do the same thing, a little bit of a town hall. But please just support and buy wherever you can, you know, send it to a friend. And a lot of people have asked me, you know, my parents don't understand what I do for a living or like they don't get NFTs. And I'm like, is this a book for them? I'm like, it is. I think it's probably the softest approach for people to understand what's been happening. And um, follow me, Bobby Hundreds, everywhere, even my Substack. We'll put everything in the show notes. You guys will all see it. Bobby, thanks so much for coming. Really, uh, thank you for spending so much time with us. 
We always love seeing you and can't wait to see you either in Indiana, LA, New York, or wherever life brings you. Gotta be the first time uh, you've said that, Sam. See you in Indiana? Yeah. Question mark. <laughs> no, I was I like, is that still a state? <laughs> it is a state. Avery, Bobby's just a gift. All the words he says, so interesting, so important. And I think he's such a good champion for our space because he is so measured and he really is thoughtful about it. I love what he was saying about AI, where everyone else is like, great, how do I do this to like replace myself? He's like, no, I don't really see the fit. And I thought that was really interesting. What were your takeaways from this? A couple of key takeaways. First, Bobby is just incredibly humble and he has this amazing delivery that's really relatable that I think everyone can kind of associate themselves with. I've really been enjoying his book, so it was great to hear him give his perspective on where NFTs have been and hint towards a little bit about what he talks about in his book around where the future is heading. I love his take on AI. I thought it was really interesting as well to hear the history of where his business was before NFTs and also the perspective that this is still a very small component of the overall hundreds brand that him and Ben are running. I think a lot of times collectors don't realize the sort of full picture. I feel that a lot with, you know, V friends. People often like think that's all Gary works on. I'm like, he's the CEO of like 40 companies. And Bobby is very, in a similar way, he's an author, he's a speaker, he's a creator, he's a talent. He's also, you know, running his day-to-day streetwear business. So this is just one vehicle for him to express his creativity. So incredible takeaways from Bobby. And I think a really nice history lesson. I think a lot of what we've talked about on this podcast with some of our guests has been very in the now. And today's episode is a little bit more history lesson of how we got here and really that dual side of the NFTs are a scam and NFTs are the future and Bobby's take at kind of finding that middle ground. Yeah, for sure. When we were at Consensus, he told that story about watching the Air movie with Michael Jordan. And it was so funny because literally two days later, I found a clip of Charles Barkley. Barkley was also signed as a Nike athlete. And they were doing their deal and Michael pulled him aside and said, Charles, he said, whatever they're offering you, take 20% of it in Nike stock. And supposedly like Barkley was like, no, I'm good. Like I want the money. And he's like, you have enough money. Like you're good. Take 20% in stock. Trust me. And then like fast forward and Charles said it was worth 20 or 30 times what he would have been paid. And like, just so interesting to hear Michael being such a good businessman. Like we knew he's a billionaire for a reason and the greatest who ever played the game but also so savvy when it comes to his image and how he repped it. I think it's actually a really great model for why we should be championing creators in our space because the Jordan brand, which is a multi-billion dollar brand, would not have been built without the inside of Nike and the creator force that is Michael Jordan. Yeah, and there's such a groundswell for this in the world of Web3 and beyond. I think we're seeing in the world of marketing This whole creator economy just continues to develop within social channels, outside of social channels, creators becoming entrepreneurs, creators launching their own lines, whether it's vitamins or apparel or, you know, makeup collabs. Like this is just something that's happening from all angles. And I feel like brands and marketers really need to pay attention to how to best effectively partner with creators and not just from a sponsorship deal standpoint, but from a more integrated co-creation standpoint. All right. Avery, with that, thank you. So good seeing you. Good luck at VCon. I'm so upset I'm not going to be able to make it. It is my daughter's graduation, so I can't be on the ground in Indiana, but I know it's going to be amazing. I'm looking very much forward to watching it from afar and crush it. Thank you so much, Sam. You will be missed, but obviously you have a very good reason to be in New York. So thank you for the well wishes and excited for next episode of Gen C. Thank you everyone for tuning in. As always, feel free to hit us with any questions, comments, suggested guests. We'd love to hear from you. 
Take care.